you remember back to chapter one, chapter one was all about suffering and pain and anguish. And here in chapter two or act two of our story, things begin to change. But I'm sure for all of you guys, most of you, you know, you, you go about your day just, just crushing it, right? I'm sure this week, for many of you, you know, you, you took your commute into work, whether that's cycling or in your car, you got there and you just thought, nailed it, right? You handed in that report to your, to your boss and, 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 you know, through tears, he says, thank you for working so hard. I so appreciate it. You know, or maybe you stay home, you know, with, with, with kids and, and, you know, this week really was just kicking back while your kids, you know, sipping Prosecco, while your kids feed you grapes and they, you know, fan you and tell you how wonderful you are as a parent and all of that, right? Or, or maybe not, you know, maybe, maybe that's not what it's like. Maybe we can, we can relate somewhat to Naomi and to Ruth. Now, I think for most of us, we've probably not experienced a level of suffering that they experience here. I mean, just, I mean, I'm not saying, I don't want to discount anything you've ever been through. But if we think about Naomi, she's lost her husband. She's lost her kids. She's lost everything. She came back home. She was full before she left and she has come back home and has nothing. Right? She has suffered greatly. But maybe we've had times where we felt like everything was coming apart. Like maybe we just felt like, you know what? Tomorrow is just too hard. Then it would be easier just to walk away. Maybe you found yourself like Naomi, wanting to change your name to bitter. Because you're just like, man, life sucks right now. Like, and I think that's I mean, if we're being honest, I don't want to discount that. I think many of us have probably been there. If we're not there now, we've been there before, or we, we might be there again. Those times where life just feels like it's unraveling, unraveling. Far from crushing it, life feels like it's crushing us. And that's what we have seen in chapter one. For Ruth and Naomi, the last 10 years, 10 years, not 10 months, not 10 weeks, 10 years of their life have been marked by suffering, by barely scraping by, by wondering, what, why does God hate them? I mean, that seems to be how Naomi feels, right? She actually says, the Lord has done this to me. Chapter 1 focused so much on suffering. And one of the things that we learned, though, is that we don't always get an explanation why it happens. Naomi blames God, but our narrator does not do that. Our narrator does not say this, whatever happened is because Naomi did X, Y, and Z, or because Elimelech took them to Moab, or because the sons married Moabite women. None of that is said as like, oh, they should have never left Israel. None of that is said. It is left blank for us to fill in the blanks. And I think that gives it a sort of eternal relevance to us, or not eternal, I suppose, but a relevance even now because we get this ambiguity about why any of this has happened. Naomi is left questioning, why has this happened to me? And she comes to the conclusion, it must be something that God has done to me. Right? She says that the Lord has raised his fist against her. But our hint in the story that that is not what has happened begins in verse 6 of chapter 1 where it says, where our narrator tells us that Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. It just so happened that Naomi just so happened to be in a field where some people just so happened to be talking about Israel and just so happened to mention that there was food once again in Israel. And then as we come to the end of chapter, of chapter 1, verse 22, it says that so Naomi and Ruth returned. And this is a theme, this idea of, of a theme in, in chapter 1. It actually appears, the word to return appears 12 times in chapter 1. So it gives us a hint what the idea is. They're, they're returning, right? So they return back from Moab, accompanied by, uh, Naomi does, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth. 
And they arrived in Bethlehem in the late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Once again, it just so happens that they arrived at just the right time when people are starting to pick food. When there is food in the land and it just so happens they're harvesting that food. And so while chapter 1 focuses on suffering, though gives us a hint that God, even though our narrator does not tell us that God specifically did anything, we are meant to see that even in this suffering, God is at work. And so while chapter 1 focuses on suffering, chapter 2, I think, really begins to remind us and helps us to see God's grace and God's kindness and God's faithfulness. We noted last week that the narrator never mentions God, and I just noticed it, noted it a second ago. But we're meant to see in all the coincidences and all the happenings of the book that God is everywhere at work in the background and through the free choices of individuals. And these coincidences will continue as we walk through chapter 2, as we, as we have seen so I just want to circle back around as we just kind of reorient ourselves again in, in the book of Ruth. I think many of us, like Naomi, sometimes feel as if God is angry with us. Whether that's from our upbringing, where we were told as much, <laughs> or whether it's just from like we know ourselves, the things that we did last week or the things that we, we did before, and we have this idea or this concept, maybe it's even a cultural view, maybe, of God, that somehow he is just angry at everyone. And that includes me. That we live our lives believing that God is angry with us. And it's one of those where you go, where does that come from? Where does that come from? Why do we have that feeling? Why do sometimes we have those pressing feelings like God is angry at me or God doesn't like me or God doesn't care about me? Because as we read books like Ruth, as we read throughout the Old Testament, we see that that, that couldn't be further from the truth. And so I actually wanted to start, just as we begin this conversation around Ruth uh, chapter 2, this morning with a passage that has been really helpful and profound to me, even when I'm, when I'm starting in, in, in my prayers and things, and I would just encourage you guys, this is a really important passage. If you don't have it memorized, to memorize. It's Exodus chapter 34, uh, verse 6. This is where God shares who he is. And I think this is a great starting point as we look at Ruth 2, as we interpret the book of Ruth, that we see this is who God is. This is who he says he is. God doesn't say, I hate everybody and maybe I'll take pity on them. You know, like God doesn't, God, God doesn't reveal himself as an angry, vindictive God. Instead, if you remember back to our series that God has a name, we actually, we worked on this, on this passage <clears throat> where, where um, God reveals himself this way. The Lord passed in front of Moses. So Yahweh, he, God, he passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed or he called out Yahweh, the Lord, a God of compassion and mercy. And I think we're going to see that as we walk through Ruth chapter 2. That though it seems like God is absent, God is present, and he is a God of compassion and mercy who is slow to anger. Like, think about that too. Again, I think back to that series one of the things that we mentioned is that God is, that word is actually long of nostrils, right? That it doesn't actually say slow to anger. It says that God is long of nostrils, which means that he has like, he's extremely patient. You think about, again, when you're really mad, what do you do if you don't want to blow your lid? Or, you know, if you feel like, you know, if somebody's just really messing up and you just want to keep your cool, what do you do? Deep breath. God can take that deep breath in for a real long time. That's the idea, right? He is slow to anger. Sure, God gets angry at injustice. God hates injustice, but he does not hate his people. He does not hate the humans that he created. He loves you and he hates the fact that injustice so often rules the day in our world and that we participate in it. 
God is slow to anger. He is filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Now this word is going to be important, that idea of, of faithfulness, because it's going to be a theme throughout the book of Ruth, and we're going to find it appear here in chapter 2. Only instead of, it's, uh, and it's going to be said of God. And that word faithfulness, underneath it is the Hebrew word chesed. Now, if any of you actually speak Hebrew, I apologize, because I'm probably going to butcher anything I try and say in Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew, but we're going to do our best. So we'll just say chesed. All right? That's the word underneath it. And it means loyalty, faithfulness, kindness, generosity, and it's all tied into covenant that God will do what he says he will do. And if he says he is patient, he is patient. If he says he is loving, he is loving. And it carries with this, this idea of, of covenant loyalty, that God will be there for you. He says he will be. Of covenant faithfulness, that God will not walk away from you of covenant kindness, that God has promised to be kind and he will be kind, right? It's this idea of, uh, like, it's a hard word to translate into English because it has such a deep and broad meaning all around the idea, again, of loyalty, faithfulness. It can be translated love, of covenant love, okay? So that's where I wanted to start, that as we look at chapter 2, we interpret chapter 2 through the lens of who God has revealed himself to be. Ruth, I think, in many ways, and Boaz as well, both look an awful lot like God. They are kind. They are patient. Ruth, the book of Ruth, shows us God's grace amidst the trials and pain of life. And that while life can and does deal us hard blows, God is working through it. He is and has been pursuing you. No matter how far you've run. And I think that is one of the themes of the book of Ruth. And one of the important things that we can take away. As we look at kind of the big picture. And this is the, the end of the introduction before we dive into it, uh, the, the text a bit further. Is this. God is pursuing you. You have not run too far from God. Ruth and Naomi had not run too far from God. They may have gone to Moab, but God was there. You cannot outrun God. Jonah tried, it didn't work for him either. We have a God who pursues, but a God who is kind and patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who is merciful. So let's dive into to the text. We're just going to walk through it. All right, and I'm gonna hopefully, what I, what I wanna do over the next few minutes, and this is gonna be short, it really is, my notes are only two pages long. All right, we're gonna fly through this, and we're just gonna kind of take, we're gonna read the text again, take a few, stop, take a few stops to kind of unpack some things that, that may, may be difficult to see in the text if we don't know it's there, like some Hebrew underneath and, and, and all of that. But I've, I've, I've actually, I eliminated a bunch of things I wanted to say so that we could get to the, the things I think that are really important for helping us in the text. So, all right, verse one. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem. Stop there. Okay. <laughs> all right, it bodes well, right? Okay, so first sentence. There was a wealthy and influential man. All right, so in verse one of chapter two, we're introduced to a character. Okay, it's the first time he shows up, and we know about him before Ruth and Naomi know about him. Right? So it starts like Ruth and Naomi don't know about Boaz yet, and that's important to our story. Remember, so we've been introduced to a guy. There is a man, a wealthy and influential man. Now, the word underneath there, and I told you I'm going to butcher the, he the Hebrew, is Gabor Hayil. So don't look to me for Hebrew pr pronunciation, but that's Gabor Hayil. Okay? And the reason I bring that up is because this is actually a very common phrase used in the Old Testament. When you put Gabor and Hayil together. So Hayil is going to be used later uh, of Ruth and it can mean virtuous. All right. So and in Proverbs 31, that's the word of the Hayil woman. Right. She is a virtuous woman. But when you put Gabor Hayil together, 
It's like a, it's, it's a phrase that they would use in speaking about somebody. Now, translations are going to translate this different. So the New Living Translation says wealthy and influential. If you have the NIV, it probably says something different. King James, I know it does. The ESV says something even different. And the King James is going to say something different, right? So what we're going to end up with is translating the phrase uh, here in, in this passage as a, a mighty man of wealth or a worthy man. Or uh, what's the, the, a man of standing, if you have the NIV, okay? But, and it can mean all of those things. And that's, that's but it, I think when you look at those together, it gives us a picture of what that word means in the context of Ruth chapter two. But if we look at the broader scope of the Bible, do you know what it's translated more often than not? I'm gonna guess you probably don't. At least I had to look this up uh, as I did a word study on, of, uh, study on this. Mighty man or mighty men of valor. So you read this throughout, throughout say, First uh, and Second Chronicles. This phrase shows up talking about David's mighty men of valor or a mighty man of valor. Or if you go to, to Gideon, or sorry, Gideon in Judges chapter 6, right? The angel who appears to Gideon says, hey, mighty hero, <laughs> Gabor Hayil. It's that phrase. And so it carries with it this connotation. It's not just about being wealthy. It's not just about being influential. It's not just about being a man of standing, but it says something about the character of the person. This is a significant person because they're, you know, like they're a very significant person. That's what it's saying. A gaber hayil. Not anybody can be that. Not anybody is called that. It is a special title for someone of significance. And we read that Boaz is a person of significance, of wealth, of influence. He's an important character. All right, and, and, and the last thing I wanna say is I'm gonna come back to Gideon here because that phrase is translated as a mighty hero, or again, a mighty man of valor. Boaz, which I, we'll, we'll get to his name here in the second half of verse one, right? Boaz is a hero, but not in the same way that these mighty men. He didn't go out and fight a valiant battle, you know, doing, you know, a battle with the enemies of, of Israel. Instead, Boaz, and I'm going to ruin the story if you haven't read it already, Boaz is going to marry a foreign woman. And that's what makes him a hero. Because this woman is virtuous. She's incredible. She's more godly than, like, he looks at her and says, she is more godly than anybody I've ever met in my entire life. And he's the hero who redeems her, who rescues her out and, and Naomi out of their difficult situation. And so even there, I think the author, as he introduces Boaz by calling him a Gaber Hayil, is pointing to the fact that he is going to be a hero. Just maybe not in the way we always expect a hero to be. And those are the best kinds of heroes, right? Uh, the unexpected hero. Thrust into a situation. All right, second half, named Boaz. All right, so the name Boaz probably means in him is strength. In him is strength. And that means like in God is strength. In him is strength. Boaz is a strong man who lives justly in a time of injustice. And we'll get there in a, in a moment, but we talked about last week, the book of Judges, which is when this story takes place in the, in the time of the judges was a terrible place to live. Like you think of like Gotham City if you're a Batman person, something like that. Like this is, Boaz is Batman, right? That's what I'm getting at really. No, like you think like it's a terrible place. It is full of every possible vice. It is not a safe place for women, particularly single women, to be living. People, is, it is racked with injustice. And here we have Boaz, who is a just man in a time of injustice. But his strength does not come from himself. It comes from God. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Stop there. We'll get to more verses later, okay? The, the, we, we've got a couple of stops here in the first two verses. This is, not, this is something that seems foreign to us, right? Like the idea that like, somebody could just go out in the field and start picking up food. But it wasn't foreign to them. And she actually says, anyone who would let me do it. Here's the thing. 
If you're talking about a, an Israelite society that's living for God and that is just, every single person with a field should have been willing to let her do it. But again, we're living in an unjust time. But in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 19 to 22, and, and throughout the Mosaic Law, we find that people who were poor, who were, who were widows and orphans or strangers, would be allowed to basically go through a field and pick up anything people dropped in order to, to have food. It was like a welfare system uh, in, in Israel. So that's what you find, all right? So that's what's going on. That's what she's going to do. She's going to go out and try and find any scraps she can out in any field that somebody will let her so that they can hopefully gather enough food to be able to eat enough to stay alive. That's her plan. That's what she's going to do. All right? So now we come to verse 3, which might be one of the most important verses in the whole book. And so Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. Sorry, Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Remember, she doesn't know who Boaz is at this point. And we find this phrase, and as it happened. I'm not even going to attempt the Hebrew here. But a literal translation of it into the English is kind of fun. Okay, so the very literal translation of this is, and her chance chanced upon. This is kind of fun. And her chance chanced upon. Which if we were to put it in our idioms of today, would mean, as luck would have it. Or maybe, uh, or wouldn't you know it? Or, surprise, surprise, she ended up in a field of this guy Boaz. What is the author doing there? Does the author, is the author really surprised? No. He's saying, this is not chance. He is screaming at us in this verse. This is not an accident. Without saying, God did something, this is about the most blatant way you could say that God did something. Okay? Like, if you think about it like that, it'd be like, you know, and as luck would have it. They, you know, like, that sort of idea is going on here. This may have been Ruth's free choice, right? She just went out, she saw a field, she said, hey, let's give that one a try, right? That's all that happened. But God was at work underneath what was happening. God was orchestrating and directing Naomi, Na or sorry, Ruth. Ruth made a free choice to go to that field, but God was working in and through that choice. And it just so happened that she ended up in a field owned by a relative. God was orchestrating things for her and Naomi's good. So while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Again, it just so happened, she managed to go to a field that was owned by a guy who was a relative, was allowed to pick grain in that field, and then he made a surprise appearance at the field. He left town, went out to inspect his field at just the right moment. Again, is that an accident? I don't think the author wants us to think that that is an accident. He wants us to see that all of this is on purpose, that God is working for Ruth and for Naomi's good, that he is orchestrating things so that they will be cared for. And the foreman replied, or sorry, then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us. You gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when, they are when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Again, a sign of the times that Boaz had to warn the men 
you leave her alone and you do not touch her. This is not a safe place for someone like Naomi. God had provided, even in this moment, for her. Even if nothing else were to happen, he provided a place where she would not be taken advantage of. But we read on. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left father and mother and your own land to live here among the strangers. Thank goodness for a small town, right? Word gets around quick. You know, normally we can complain about all the gossip in a small town and all that, but in this, in this instance, it ended up being a good thing for Naomi or for Ruth because Boaz is like, hey, I've heard about you. I know who you are. You know, I don't know who you are, but I know who you are. You know, I think about when Alyssa and I first moved here, like, you know, uh, 10 years ago, everybody in the village knew who we were, even though we didn't know who they were, right? I feel like it's a sort of similar thing happening, <laughs> happening here with, um, with, uh, with, with uh, Ruth and Boaz, right? Boaz knows who she is. Her reputation precedes her. And so Boaz says to her, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. This is a really important phrase. Because this phrase, wings, about like the wings, are gonna sh- it's going to show up again in, uh, in chapter 3. So we'll, we'll talk about it again next week. <coughs> but suffice it to say, just mental note, remember that. Okay? But other thing that I want to say about it is that this idea of wings is a significant motif or theme in the Old Testament. Okay? They signify strength and protection. So they're mentioned in connection with the Exodus. So God, when he carries his people out of Egypt, it says that he carried them on eagles' wings. All right? Um, That's Exodus 19.4. In the Psalms, we read about God's wings or being in the shadow of his wings, that it provides protection for those who seek refuge in him. So this theme of, of wings, what Boaz says to her, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. And I think it's significant. Boaz recognizes what Ruth has said in chapter 1 to Naomi. Your God will be my God. She has come to live under the wings, under the protection, under the care of God, the loving Father. And so Boaz prays this prayer that God would reward her fully for what she has done. And again, chapter 3, we're going to find that there, and chapter 4, that Boaz ends up being the answer to his own prayer. Um, But yeah, moving on. I hope to continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in, in some sour wine. So she sat with the harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. Do you see the kindness of Boaz? The mercy and the grace of Boaz. Boaz didn't owe her that, right? Boaz, really the only thing by Old Testament law that he owed her was to let her take some scraps from the field. But he actually orders his guys like, hey, drop some, on the, drop some on the ground. Give her more than she needs. Like, let her take a good amount. He shows kindness and grace. So Ruth gathered barley there all day long. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. You guys, Ruth went out to get scraps to get scraps, to hopefully come home with a handful enough that they could maybe make a loaf of bread. For lunch, she got more than she could eat. She put it in her little sack and was going to take that home to her, to her mother-in-law <coughs> as she kept getting out grain. But then by the end, here's the amount that she walks, walks home with. So your text may say about an ephah or an ephah of, of grain. 
just to put that into context, it's like 13 or 14 kgs. Like she's coming home with like, I think about like, you know, when you go to like, uh, like Aroma Foods or something, like the bags of rice there, like that's what she's doing, right? She's coming home with like a two-handed like bag of rice. Like that's what she's carrying home. She went to get enough for a loaf of bread and she comes back with an enormous bag of grain that will last them for a good while. And that's just day one, right? This is the generosity that we're seeing of Boaz. But more than Boaz, we're seeing the generosity of God. And so, Ruth comes home. She carried it back into the town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man whose field she had worked. <clears throat> she said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. So this is the first time Naomi, all of a sudden, she now meets the fact that Boaz has come into the picture, right? She has been bitter. She has been cold. She has been angry. She has been hurt. She has been wounded. And now all of a sudden, Ruth comes home with an enormous bag of grain. Like this is more than like Sam and Blake and Caden of rice that they carry home on a weekly basis from super value. Like this is a lot. Like she comes home with a huge bag of grain. She's like, where did you get it? And Ruth is like, that's some guy named Boaz. I don't know. You can imagine. Ruth has no idea. Like she has no idea that when she says to to Naomi, yeah, I was in the field with some guy. Ah, what's his name? Uh... Baaz, Bimaz, Boaz, Boaz, it was Boaz. You know that, like, here's Naomi's reaction, right? May the Lord bless him! Naomi told her daughter-in-law, he is showing kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. Here's my last note, all right? Here's my last note. This is not talking about the kindness of Boaz. Naomi, right here, moves from bitterness into joy, into pleasant again, and she praises God. She says, may the Lord bless him. So may the Lord, may Yahweh bless Boaz. Naomi told her daughter-in-law, and this he is connected to God. God, you could read this, is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. Remember I mentioned that word chesed at the beginning. Here it is. God is showing his chesed, his faithfulness. See you guys, his love, his kindness to Naomi and Ruth. Ruth and er, Naomi in chapter one has said, God has raised his fist against me. And here she says, God is showing his faithfulness to me. There has been a change. There has been a movement. Now she sees that God loves her, that he cares for her, and that he is watching out for her. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. So this idea of a family redeemer, okay? Again, you're talking about a culture with no real safety net, right? There's not social welfare. There's not, you know, you can't get a social house, like all that kind of stuff that doesn't exist. The closest thing is gleaning in a field and yeah, you were to look after people who needed it. But this idea of a family redeemer is the closest thing, right? Because if you got really poor and you had to sell your property, or even worse, you had to sell yourself to somebody else, a family member who had enough money could come and by law, buy that land back for you. And it would be your land. It wouldn't be his land. It would be your land. Or they could buy you out of slavery. That's the idea of a redeemer. And so Naomi says, he is our redeemer, our family redeemer, one of our family redeemers, which gives us a hint that there may be somebody else who comes into the picture later and complicates things. Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed, do as he said, my daughter. Stay, uh, <clears throat> stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. 
So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest and early summer, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. <clears throat> now, it can be really easy in this story to get so caught up in how kind and full of grace Boaz is, or how loyal and faithful Ruth is. But as I think as we've been walking through this, I've been hinting and maybe not even just hinting, but saying over and over, what we see is, is the real lesson here is that God is the one who is kind and faithful and merciful and full of grace to his people. That's what we see. And Ruth is now one of those people and now chance has chanced upon and God is looking after her. And so the, the story, even the character traits of Ruth and Boaz, and they are wonderful characters. We only get the good side of each one of them, right? Like they are wonderful characters, are meant to point us to the wonderful character of God. This story is primarily intended as a revelation of who God is, even in the midst when we cannot see it, when we don't understand what God is doing. <clears throat> so we learn that God is a God of kindness and grace who is seeking after people. He rewards seekers, whether they seek like as resolutely as Ruth did, <clears throat> or like Naomi, we barely have enough energy to seek at all. God is seeking. You just think from Ruth's point of view, this whole thing just must have seemed incomprehensible. The idea that God could be directing things. I mean, Naomi, or sorry, Ruth comes from Moab. The gods of Moab are not kind. The gods of Moab are not slow to anger. The gods of Moab are not merciful and compassionate. They are the exact opposite of all of those things. And so it would have seemed incomprehensible to Ruth that God could have been doing these things, and especially for her. She didn't intend to go find the field of a relative, but God was directing things. You imagine being in a, in a time where women were second-class citizens, being a woman being a foreign woman, being a foreign widowed woman, in a place where Boaz has to say to his men, do not touch her, that she would have felt like it is incomprehensible, even if she believed that God, that, you know, as she does now, that God is good and faithful and just and kind. Surely God couldn't care for me, though. He may care for them, but he, how could he care for me? Like, I just feel like Ruth must have felt this deep feeling that, that why would God pay attention to her? Why would God care about her? And I think this is one of the profound lessons of this passage. It's this. God cares for even those who f that feel unimportant, that feel unloved, that feel unwelcome, that feel undeserving, that feel insignificant. And maybe that's you. Maybe that is you. I, I don't know. Maybe you struggle with these feelings. You need, maybe you need to hear this. This is what you need to hear. This is what God feels about you. God cares for you. Even though you may feel unimportant, even though you may feel unloved, God cares for you. But maybe on the opposite end of that, you struggle with judgment. You struggle being really judgy. Maybe you struggle with both. I think sometimes that's the problem. People end up being really judgy because they feel really insignificant or unworthy or unloved or uncared for, right? I don't know where you're at on this, but you need to hear this. This is who God cares for. Throughout scripture, we see it, whether it's through the Old Testament, you know, going through the prophets every November is usually a gut punch about how God cares about the vulnerable people in our societies. Or whether it's Jesus who looked after people who, you know, had problems with bleeding and they were perpetually unclean, or people who were, who were sick and, and <clears throat> demon-possessed and, and, you know, maimed with withered hands and all kinds of stuff. Jesus cared for those people. God cares for these people. God was seeking Ruth and Naomi. He cared for Ruth and Naomi, and God cares for you 
and God is seeking you. Another main theme of, I think, at least chapter one is that feeling of being forsaken. Naomi had accused God of dealing bitter with her. She had accused him of making life difficult for her. And now with the news of this providential accident, you know, that she just so happened to be in, in Boaz's field that, that Ruth did, she realized, Naomi did, that in spite of all that had happened, God had in fact not forsaken her. That he had all along still been showing faithfulness to her and her family. Again, we don't get an answer, back to chapter one, why the things that happened, happened. And sometimes I just think, we've used the phrase of living in the already but not yet. Like even on this side of Jesus, that God has, that Jesus has come, that he has conquered sin and death and evil, but yet there is still evil and sin and death in this world, that we live in that in-between and junk just happens, rubbish happens. Terrible things happen. And it doesn't mean that God caused those terrible things to happen, but that promise that we talked about last week in Romans 8, that God can work all things for good. It doesn't make what happened good. It just means that God can take it and even use those things for our good. But it takes faith. And faith is then how we begin to see God at work and not just random fate. Right? Naomi understands that what is happening to her is not just random fate, but rather God is at work. And so faith, in a way, changes luck. You know, because I said you could translate that as luck would have it, right? But the Hebrews, like, the Israelites didn't believe in luck. So when you translate it like, you know what I mean? It's like one of those chants. They didn't believe in chants, right? So when she, when, the, when, their, when our author says that, it points to the fact that faith has changed luck into blessing and coincidence into providence. Naomi knows this is not an accident. And so I was just thinking about this. What are the times in your life where chance has chanced upon? Can you think of those things? And sometimes I think it's important, especially when we're bogged down in difficulty, when we're bogged down in pain, when we're bogged down feeling insignificant or unloved or uncared for. What are those times that we can look back on and say, chance chanced upon. This was no accident. God was at work in my life. Like every person I know who is a follower of Jesus. Like, like, maybe you'll be the exception, I don't know, but at least to this point, at least everybody I've talked to about this can say, I can see how God was at work in my life before I ever became a Christian. I can look back and see that God was pursuing me. Right, I think about in my own life. Okay, I was 17, playing in a band. We weren't that good, but I thought we were. Okay, that's, that's the story. I'm not going to pretend like we were amazing. We weren't, but I thought we were, and I wanted to make a career out of music. I was trying to get our, our band signed to a small record label. Long story short, the record label had another, had, like the people who owned the record label were also in a band, and they were going to come play with us, and then their van burned to the ground. No joke, really happened and they didn't have insurance on any of their gear. And then they had to sell the record label. And then the people who bought that record label weren't interested in our band at all because we weren't that good. And I was crushed and I was ruined. And even though I had no right to, I probably felt like Naomi. But I look back on that now and I see how that changed the trajectory of my life. It completely changed the trajectory of my life and I am forever thankful for it. Now, did God cause their van to burn down or did it just happen and God used it for good? I tend to lean towards that. You know, I, would, I don't know. It wouldn't have been very nice to like make somebody's van burn down, you know, just so I would change the trajectory of my life. But you know what I mean? Like it's one of those God uses our circumstances. What are those in your life? Or I think about our church. Do you know, Alyssa and I never intended to move to Moikulin. It was just the only place we could afford an apartment. So we moved here. Chance chanced upon that a place just appeared above super value that fit our needs perfectly at the time. And we drove from Drogheda here to see it and we took it on the spot because it was all we could afford. And it was perfect and it was everything we were looking for in a place. <laughs> but we were going to plant a church in the city, right? But chance chanced upon. And I could, I could keep going with that story 
But we ended up chancing upon a family at the playground that we met. That then the next week we met at the Baptist church. And the Baptist church just so happened to say, hey, look, if you want to start a church and that family's willing to go with you, please take them. We couldn't afford a building. And then chance chanced upon that the guy, a family that, that has come to church in the past, knew the people that owned this building. And then I told him we couldn't, there was no way, it was a perfect building, but there's no way we could afford it. He went and talked to them and chance chanced upon, they gave us a deal that we could afford it. And I look back and then I say, okay, sure, it could all be random, but it's not, no way. And here we are, seven years later, meeting together and worshiping in this building. What are those places in your life? Faith is how we see God at work and not just random fate. Naomi's faith had been challenged, and when she returned to Bethlehem, she freely admitted that she'd been disappointed with God, and maybe that's where you're at. I think it's okay. I think it's okay to freely admit that you've been disappointed by God. But don't let that close you off to God's working. You can say, I'm disappointed in the way things have gone, because it's not the way I would be writing my story right now, I can tell you that. But process that. Work through it. And together as a church, we live in faith, believing that God can work even those things that we don't like or don't care for or things aren't going the way we want them to. God can work and direct those for good. She had felt disappointed with God. Now, however, her faith was rekindled. Far from forsaking her, she realized that God was at work and was providing for her. And in his kindness and faithfulness, this is what I think we see. God is working in the unnoticed and the mundane of every life, of everyday life. So I want to come back around to this idea that I talked about in the beginning. God is not angry with you. God hates injustice. There's a lot of things that God hates. And it's those things that take us away from him, that rip us away from him, that tear us away from him. It's those things that hurt people, that cause pain and separation in this world. God hates all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying God doesn't hate things, but God doesn't hate you. He is not angry at you. He loves you. And when I say anger like that, I mean like, God might be angry at you like a parent. Okay? Let me just qualify that for a second. I get angry at my kids sometimes, but it's because I love them and I want what's best for them. And, it's, and that, that anger, and I need to be careful, always need to be careful about that. But that anger is because I want what's best for them and I hate them seeing them do things that are not what's best for them, right? But do I stop loving my kids? Do I stop caring for my kids? Do I mistreat my kids? No. And that's what I mean. God is not angry and vindictive, ready to punish you and to hit you and to hurt you just because. He is not an abusive father. He is a good father that all fathers should be compared to. All right? So that's, that's what I'm saying. God is not angry at you. He loves you. And while he's certainly angered by injustice, the desire for you is for your good and, his, and your relationship with him. That's what he wants. He's pursuing you. His desire is that he would be your God, as Ruth has proclaimed in Ruth chapter 1, that he would be your God and you would be his people. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. So as we finish... I just want to circle back around to Boaz here quick. Because again, Boaz shows an incredible generosity and an incredible grace. Doesn't he? Like he goes way above and beyond what could be expected of anyone to do in this situation. He treats her with so much kindness, generosity, and grace. Ruth eats until she's full. She's sent back home with an abundance of grain that was way more than could have been expected for one day's worth of work. And I can't help but think, again, saying, Boaz points us to God. You know, Boaz has this phrase where he says, my daughter, to Ruth. And I can't help but thinking about the goodness and the kindness of our father, who says to us, my son, or my daughter, just let me be generous to you. This is how God deals with us. He is so unexpectedly 
generous. Boaz shows Ruth what God is like. But you and I have something even better than Boaz, right? Because we have Jesus. We see what God is like most fully in Jesus. Jesus is our, and he is the ultimate Gabor Hayil, right? The ultimate hero, man of valor. The ultimate influential person. Jesus is our Gabor Hayil, and in him there is strength. There is strength to get through whatever we are dealing with. Jesus is our redeemer. Right, Boaz came and he was generous and kind. He took care of them. And later, again, redemption is a huge theme in the book of Ruth. And he will redeem Naomi and he will redeem Ruth and he will redeem the line of Mehlon, the line of Elimelech. He'll do all of those things. But he ultimately points us to Jesus, our Redeemer. Jesus' name means... The Lord is salvation, and he has come to redeem and to save. And so as we live like Jesus, we show the world, like Boaz showed to Ruth, we show the world what God is like. So I just want to finish with this question. Who can you show generosity and grace to this week?